It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who can correctly pronounce Haemophilus influenza B. Well done. Thank you. I've I had to practice that. I still can't pronounce interception very. You did great. Well, You're I just have to... knocking them out of the park. Okay, but that's took practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My name is Karen Ernst, and I am the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. And I'm Nathan Boonster. I'm a general pediatrician at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. And it's still National Immunization Awareness Month. And this week is the week where we think about babies and our littlest kids. And today we have a very special surprise. Do you know what that is, Nathan? I do, but I'm going to let you tell it. Uh, It is, uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Bob Jacobson from the Mayo Clinic. Cool. Can't wait. I know. It's going to be great. Before then, we're going to get our Dr. Boonstra here to talk a little bit about what vaccines we even give to children before the age of two. Mm -hmm. So I've heard it is something like 592 vaccines before the age of two. Am I right? So close. Yeah. (laughs) No, although depending on what website you look at, that number seems to change around. If you could look at some of the anti-vaccine websites, they somehow make it out to be like uh, hundreds of vaccines mm-hmm. i don't i don't quite understand how they get away with such math really it's, when you it's look it's new math it is absolutely new math <laughs> it's the kind of math that uh the bob parr and dash parr were working on in incredibles yeah. uh, two <laughs> um <laughs> the the what you're looking at in the first year or so of life i i don't have the numbers right in front of me but if i remember correctly there's about 14 different diseases that we protect against in those first two years of life and that works out depending on what kind of combination shots you have to be just usually just two or three shots Mm. at a given visit so the first uh two month uh, visit that you go to with your baby that baby is most likely again kind of depends on the clinic and depends on which shot brands they have but they're probably going to get three shots that protect them against seven diseases and then uh the oral rotavirus vaccine and then so that's usually what uh babies get at two, four, and six months is just those three shots um, that protect against those seven diseases. And those diseases include diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, uh, polio, uh, hepatitis B, pneumococcal disease, and haemophilus influenza B, uh, and then rotavirus. So then at 12 months of age is when we immunize against usually again schedule can change a little bit depending on the location but usually immunizing against measles mumps rubella and chickenpox and that's two separate shots usually at 12 months and then there's also the hepatitis a that is usually started at 12 months as well so you get two or three or sometimes four shots depending on the schedule at that visit and then at the 12 month and 15 month and 18 month it kind of depends again on the clinic but some of those vaccines are kind of spread in the Mm -hmm. middle there so you might get a pneumococcal at 12 months you might get it at 15 months kind of depends on what the clinic schedule is but it's not a whole lot of shots at once honestly it does protect against a lot of diseases but it's only a few shots 
Yeah, it's not it's not bad actually. And you know, listening to that list and kind of remembering when I had babies, my my baby is now ten years old and it doesn't sound like it's really changed at all if if much um, since he was a baby. I mean, I think the big difference is is that he got the seven valent pneumococcal vaccine right. instead of the thirteen valent, although <laughs> I did take him back for the thirteen valent when he was three. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really haven't changed the schedule. You know, the, some of the anti vaccine websites love to paint this picture that this vaccine schedule is exploding and continually expanding. That really hasn't been the case. I mean really the newest the 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 latest fully new vaccines that are on the schedule were in the mid 2000s like the rotavirus vaccine or the pneumococcal vaccine right. like it's they've there've been improvements you know they've been maybe the pneumococcal vaccine that now covers like you mentioned for more types than the old one did etc but as far as new vaccines on the schedule it hasn't changed all that much yeah, and I'll tell you, I also have a 15-year-old, which I know is unbelievable because I'm so young looking, mm-hmm. but uh, he didn't get the rotavirus vaccine because he was born in 2003 and there wasn't one available, mm-hmm. and boy, was I excited <laughs> with the littler one when he was able to get a rotavirus vaccine. I'll, I'll tell you, you only have to live through one rotavirus outbreak in your house to just never want to again, so... Um, and and Dr. Jacobson is going to talk about rotavirus a little bit too, which is exciting yeah. because his clinical experience is vast and broad and covers, you know, uh, I mean, he's not 90 million years old, but it, it covers decades. <laughs> so he's sure. seen actual real changes because of vaccines. And he is a really kind and good person to talk to. I want to mention before we turn to the interview that uh, because of some technical glitches, he we talked to him via phone. And so the sound quality isn't quite as crisp and clear as Vax Talk fans and friends are used to. But please stick with it because uh, Dr. Jacobson is really worth listening to. Yep, absolutely worth it. And now we are joined by Dr. Bob Jacobson, pediatrician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota and father of four fully vaccinated children and uh, husband to a wonderful wife as well. So welcome, Dr. Jacobson. I just want everybody to know that the reason why I am excited to have Dr. Jacobson on our podcast is that he, in particular, is kind and generous. And I always felt that if everybody had Dr. Jacobson as their child's pediatrician, everybody would vaccinate. And so I just want to ask you, what happens when you are in clinic and a parent comes in and says, uh, I don't know about vaccines? What are, what are you, how do you handle that? All right. Well, I think that the thing that most parents are looking for is whether or not you're actually making a strong recommendation for the vaccine. We think up to about a third of our parents um, have some hesitation about it. They, they don't find it uh as comfortable as, say, generations before, um, they haven't experienced uh, uh, the loss of children from vaccine-preventable diseases. Um, and so uh, the first thing they need to hear is strongly recommend the vaccine, that uh, it's not an option or a choice. It's not something I'm giving them as, a, as something they might want to participate in, but I'm saying 
Um, this is what I, I strongly recommend. The, the nurse will be in to do the vaccines. We'll schedule a follow-up visit. Um, uh, and, you know, to make it clear that this is what's expected, that this is what I expect you to do. Uh, that's job number one. Job number two is to find out what their specific hesitation is. Because after I say, I, I want the nurse to give the vaccine, they say, well, we, we still have some questions about it. We're not really ready yet. But the next step is for me to really find out why they aren't, uh, why they're hesitant about the vaccine. And I, I make this part of what I call the case approach to vaccination. Now, this system, the case approach, was developed by Allison Tepper Singer, uh, mother of an autistic child who dedicated her life to evidence-based care for autism and a strong supporter of vaccines. And she articulated what Aristotle taught us to do more than 2,000 years ago, and that is when we want to be persuasive, we need to appeal to pathos, our emotions. Uh, we need to appeal to a professional standing, ethos. We need to appeal to our science, our logos, and we need to have um, a long-term uh, value or recommendation we're making, that helos. Well, she put it in terms of corroborate about me, science, and explain your advice. What she meant by corroborate was find the underlying belief that you and that parent have together. The parent might say, um, I, we don't vaccinate against the flu, so we won't be doing that vaccine. I don't think it really, my children really get the flu. Um, oh, a common reaction parents have, mainly because most of the time we don't diagnose the flu as flu. We rule out strep throat when probably, uh, particularly in the wintertime, as the flu causing a fever and sore throat. We rule out pneumonia when the cough and fever is probably due to flu. But we don't do the expensive tests to find out flu, so the parent thinks their children never get it. Um, so now I have in my mind what the parent has uh, as a reason for why they don't want the vaccine. Their children never get it. Now, I need to find a commonly shared belief, a belief that we have in common with that parent. Um, and, you know, actually the parents do really want in the end what the pediatrician or family physician wants. They really want to keep their child healthy and safe and free of unnecessary uh, interventions. Well, I want the same thing. And so I can return to respond to the parents and say, well, I certainly wouldn't want to give your child anything they don't need. That's our common shared uh, uh, belief that we've corroborated that. Then I move to about me. Oh, we pediatricians and family physicians are quick to skip over this and go straight to the science. But actually, we need to connect where that parent and I share the belief, but how my understanding is different than their belief because of my professional training and expertise, my readings and my uh, conversations with other professionals. So I need to go one step further. I certainly wouldn't want to give your child a vaccine against something that they don't get. I've learned over my years in my role as a pediatrician that most flu goes undiagnosed and most children your child age get the flu about once every five years. Uh, we They often don't get labeled as having the flu, but in fact, children do get the flu and they can spread it to others whether they get diagnosed or not. 
and they can have complications of it, whether they were at risk for complications or not. And on the basis of that, I really think you should be getting the flu vaccine. Um, so what you've done was move from the professional basis to the science, and then you start explaining your advice. Um, you share that common understanding. You certainly don't want to treat or prevent anything that the child's really not at risk for. You don't want to be giving them medicines or vaccines for that. But based on your professional understanding, you have a different take on what the science has to say and what informs your advice. And that's the case approach. Corroborate about me, science, and explain your advice. You mentioned earlier that uh, one of the barriers that you run into is um, staff or even other providers presenting vaccines, some of them uh, as more optional than others. And I imagine the HPV vaccine is one of those that you run into that barrier with. What kind of strategy do you use in terms of educating providers and staff as to the importance of how to make, in terms of techniques to make a good recommendation, the importance of making a good recommendation and how to present that to the family? This is a great question. Um, it, it certainly is um a problem. We know that pediatricians and family physicians make much more clear, strong recommendations to parents of infants and young children. And as the children become adolescents and as the adolescents become adults, the clinicians start presenting the vaccines like they're options or choices. Um, uh, you, do you want cream or sugar with your coffee? Would you like to get the flu vaccine? Uh, what about the HPV vaccine? These, this kind of recommendation, making it sound like a choice or an alternative, is really sending the wrong message to the parents. What the parents need to hear is, um, uh, since you've seen me for well child care, I'm expecting that you, you would uh, accept my recommendations. Uh, you know, you wouldn't say that out loud, but in your, but the next phrase should come out of your mouth. Uh, the nurse will be in to do the vac uh, to give the vaccines that your child do for the Tdap, the meningococcal vaccine, and the HPV vaccine. Now, uh, we're going to get the hearing condition before the vaccine. Now, have you go to a desk to schedule an appointment in two years to follow up with me for another well child visit? Do you have any questions for me? Now, what I did there was string a series of strong recommendations rather than put them out as a smorgasbord. I talked about all three vaccines as though they're co-equal. They're all important in their own ways. They all should be recommended as what we do next. I also mentioned the hearing and vision screens as what we do next. Um, and then finally, I mentioned the follow-up visit as what we do next. Now, of course, it's in the end, it's up to the parent. And at any point in time, the parent can say, a TDAP, we just got that emergency room a month ago. I guess it might not be in your records. Well, that's a that's a, a, a very good basis for the parent to have a hesitation for that vaccine. Or the parent might say, I think we're going to pass on the hearing and vision test. We had those both done at the school a month ago. I'll have the results sent to you. Or the parent might say, you know, because of um, my son's uh, problem with asthma, I'd rather do a yearly well-child visit than every two years. All those are great points to hesitate and change. But when I laid out the recommendations, I made them as a strong recommendation. Now, when I get to some 
areas of medicine, I might be mentioning a choice. Uh, I might say that, um, uh, you know, we, we have a choice here with your son's uh, knee pain. We could, on our own, do a five-day schedule of ibuprofen uh, and icing and hold off on the x-ray and only get the x-ray if in five days this hasn't improved. Or we could go ahead and get the x-ray today. And uh, if it's negative, we'll begin what I'm recommending. If it's positive, then we'll have to go a different route. Now, that's a very reasonable choice. And so I didn't recommend it as a strong recommendation. Both ways for that particular knee concern would be reasonable. So for HPV vaccine, what we've heard is a whole variety of variations on how the, um, the, the physician lays it out. So over half the time, the parent doesn't know it was recommended. And in fact, in survey after survey, now going back 15 years, well, 10 years, we have parents saying, I didn't know my doctor had recommended it. Uh, there's other ways that physicians can do in the recommendation when they make it sound weird or different. When they say, well, your child's due for the Tdap and meningococcal vaccine, the nurse will be in for that uh, to give those vaccines. I want you also to think about this very special vaccine we have against cancers. The cancer is very common. 30,000 cases occur every year. It's still deadly even in the U.S. It affects the head and neck. It affects the cervix and other uh, parts of the genitalia. Um, they're the parents hearing, oh, there's something weird about the vaccine, and the physician seems to be switching gears from the Tdap and meningococcal into some sort of sales pitch, like most parents are refusing it. Well, parents actually pick up on that. So I, so I uh, recommend to our providers that when they recommend the HPV vaccine, they give it equal weight with the other vaccines that are due, and they don't make it special or weird for the parent to consider. Now, when I hear hesitation on the thing, that's when I move to the case approach, corroborate about me, science, and explain advice, and find out why exactly the parent is questioning that particular vaccine, because parents can have a variety of concerns. Uh, they might think that the child's too young. They may say, think that it should, it might wear off and should be given later in life. They might think that, uh, it's too expensive and their insurance won't cover it. They may think that, uh, they should wait until the child is older. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons. Uh, they may even think that despite the fact the vaccine's been around for over 11 years and just about as long as the Tdap and the meningococcal vaccine, they may be thinking that this is a brand new vaccine that they haven't heard of. And, I'm I'm glad that you brought up case and how you approach that, particularly the about me part, because I've had the pleasure of being able to talk to you at length about vaccines, and your expertise is certainly, uh, I think, not valued enough. I don't think enough people know Dr. Bob Jacobson. One of the stories I've heard you told is about the Hib vaccine in particular, and this is an important vaccine that we give to babies and, and young kiddos. And the change in your own personal practice that you saw over time. So I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit about your experiences with the Hib vaccine and what you've seen become of medicine because of that. The Hib story is, a, I think, a great story. It's a miracle within my lifetime and my professional training as a pediatrician. 
I went into medical school and residency learning about the so-called rule-out sepsis admission. This, uh, this rule-out sepsis approach was taken for all babies under three months who showed up with a fever, 101 or higher. They not only got examined immediately, but they got hospitalized and started on antibiotics. Not after, but, but first we had to get a lumbar puncture, a blood, uh, uh, blood sampling for blood cultures, urine sampling for urine, and not collected by a baggie, but by catheterization or even putting a needle directly into the bladder. And then we, we got an x-ray of the lungs as well. And after we did those four tests, we put the child in the hospital on ampicillin and genomycin, um, and uh, watch them carefully over the next two days, watching to see if the blood culture, the urine culture, or the lumbar puncture, CSF culture, grew out bacteria. And we were scared to death of one in particular. And now it's called Hib, or Haemophilus influenza type B. But back then it was such a serious disease that we never abbreviated it, and we always called it Haemophilus influenza type B. This bacteria could be devastating. There were 20,000 cases a year in the United States back then, and it would often leave the child with a seizure disorder, with hearing loss, with cognitive impairment for life, and, um, and, and frequently actually killed the child. It was devastating. And it presented just like a fever, uh, with or without any other symptoms. So you can imagine in the first three months that uh, we found a fever, we were all over it to, uh, to prevent him. And we would actually see uh, children with fever present uh, that were older than three months with Haemophilus influenza type B all the way up to age two uh, with devastating um, complications. And all too often they presented with what was considered just fever and some general irritability. Uh, and so it was often missed, and we were scared to death of it. So near the end of my residency, um, they started rolling out a new vaccine against Haemophilus influenza type B. And initially, uh, it only worked in children two years and older, which was a tragedy, we thought, because um, those children rarely got Haemophilus influenza type B. But lo and behold, it stopped the carriage. It created a great wave of herd immunity and even before we had a better vaccine, the one we use now, that actually worked in infants and toddlers, we were wiping out the disease by vaccinating the older children in the daycare settings and in the schools. And what was 20,000 cases of Haemophilus influenza type B has dribbled down to uh, handfuls. I don't remember the last time we had a case in the state of Minnesota uh, it's been years. It has been dramatic. It has been wonderful. Here's a vaccine that parents get, give their child at two months, four months, six months, and at 12 to 15 months. And most parents um, listen to the pediatrician, family physician about the vaccines do. The nurse will be in to give these vaccines. They accept it. And most parents have no idea what hip disease is and aren't making the decision because they understand the science of Haemophilus influenza type B and the importance of prevention. They're making it because they got a strong recommendation from that provider. And that's a lesson for all of us who are trying to improve our vaccination rates with influenza and um, HPV. Our parents, our patients, really depend on the providers to make strong recommendations and make clear 
what they think matters and what doesn't. It, it really is amazing. And, you know, I, I can't imagine the difference between your training and Nathan's training, you know, just a few years later concerning Haemophilus influenza B, but it, it is interesting that parents don't really know what this disease is anymore. And I think it might sort of fold into just the not knowing folds into that, you know, concern about why there are so many vaccines that, that we give. And so I'm wondering if you can just, you know, briefly summarize, why do we give so many vaccines to kids under the age of two? That's a great question. Now, we've been very fortunate over the past few years to get some good combinations that actually pull more vaccines together so that we can do it by less injections. But when you think about it, we have the hepatitis B, which is three shots. And at two, four, and six months, we're giving three doses of diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis, two or three doses of in, uh, inactivated polio vaccine, three doses of pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, two or three doses of Haemophilus influenza type B, and then we're giving the bite-mouth version of rotavirus vaccine, two or three doses of that, and then at six months, we start the influenza vaccinations if it's within season. That's a lot of shots. Even with the rotavirus being a bimouth vaccine, that's a lot of pokes. Now, with Pediarix and Penticel, we've combined the DTAP vaccine with the polio and the hepatitis B or the Hib, and that's helped. But, frankly, um, it's still a lot of needles, and the parents will wonder, well, why couldn't you have done it all at once, or why can't we wait? Well, let's tackle the why can't we do it all at once first. The big problem is these vaccines often, when given inappropriately to the baby, are not seen. That means their immune system doesn't notice that they were given. That's a big problem. It's why we can't give the influenza vaccine before six months because the baby's immune system just ignores that vaccine. And in fact, we need two doses of flu vaccine, uh, of flu vaccine the first time around, a month apart, so that the baby does notice it. And then we have a problem with priming for the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccines as well. We need three doses of DTAP before that child actually is immune against pertussis. That takes six months, three doses. So, a lot of these shots are given repeatedly because we're trying to get the infant's body to take notice of them and make immunity. It's not a problem of overwhelming the baby. It's a problem of the baby seeing it immunologically. Um, same thing goes with the three doses of rotavirus. Now, you may say, well, why don't we just mix all up in one syringe and give it as one shot? Well, it turns out these vaccines don't mix well. Um, when you mix them, you tend to make the body ignore them. We have that problem with the um, a number of combinations that have been tried experimentally that if you put them in the same syringe in the laboratory, um, in testing, it turns out they don't work. They don't give the baby the protection that they need. And so we, the only combinations we use have been tested in tens of thousands of babies um, in experimental conditions where we really know what we're doing and what we got and whether or not it works. And so what we need is 
is our best effort to reduce the number of injections uh, and doses due and still give the baby the immunity. The second part of the question is can't we wait? Why give them all when they're infants? Well, it's a race against time. Uh, as you heard, you can't get the influenza vaccine before you're six months of age, but you do need that vaccine, and it's a shame that we can't give it any earlier because a lot of our infants hospitalized with influenza are hospitalized in the first six months of life. The same thing goes with um, uh, the uh, pertussis vaccine. I would love to have a baby who is born perfectly immune to pertussis. The only way we know how to do that at this point is temporary, and that's by vaccinating the mother-to-be during her pregnancy at 27 to 36 weeks, and that gives the baby about six months of protection against pertussis, which could kill the baby in terms of the disease causing whooping cough, apnea, bradycardia, and uh, cardiovascular collapse. So that's a good temporary uh, approach, but to give that baby real immunity through infancy and into the preschool years, we need three doses at two, four, and six months. And you would argue if you could do it, you'd do it all at birth. Um, so the timing is also what it, it, our efforts to really prevent the disease when the baby's at, at risk for it calls for us to give the vaccines when we're at the time the baby uh, has become at risk or at least when the baby can respond to the vaccine. That's uh, really useful information, actually. I think most parents don't realize that that's why they keep going back every couple of months for vaccines. And I think it's useful for people to know about that. Uh, you know, one of the questions I get, though, is, is it really safe to give all of those vaccines? You know, is it safe to give so many doses of the DTaP, for example? Doesn't that sort of wreck a baby's body? Yes, it really is. And we can say that with stronger evidence supporting that statement than we have for anything else we do in medicine. From the antibiotics we treat ear infections and strep throat, the chemotherapy we use in leukemia, the um, asthma drugs we use for asthma, we have nowhere near the data to support any of those medicines than we do for vaccinations. Our our standards for vaccine safety are much higher than the me for, for vaccines than they are for the medicines we use to treat diseases for the simple reason that we're giving these vaccines to all of the children, very large numbers, so the side effect profile has to be very small. Uh, we can't tolerate them making uh, children ill or injuring them. And so we before licensure, we require that these vaccines be studied at the ages they're supposed to be given, along with all the other vaccines that are given at that time. So in the last 10 years, for example, we added uh, the, um, uh, the new pneumococcal conjugate vaccine, the 13-valent, to schedule. Well, that was studied in infants at two, four, and six months, and at 15 months, with all the other shots that were routinely recommended at the time to make sure there was no interaction, no safety issues, and no concerns. And not in hundreds of children, mm -hmm. in tens of thousands of children. The randomized controlled trials for vaccines before licensure are huge compared to any other ones done in medicine. 
literally studying tens of thousands of children, often with a study size of a hundred thousand in both uh, a total for both uh, those who got the vaccine and didn't. Very different standards than we have for anything else. So I can say with authority that our vaccines are very safe. That is really amazing when you think about it, how drugs are normally studied, that we really know, we have, we have a great deal of confidence about how a vaccine will work in a child at the age that it's given. And, and that's amazing. There's, in the world where we don't have much confidence in anything, that's one thing we can be confident in. I guess my question then is, you've kind of presented all this for parents. What do you, when you have questions, what do you find of, you use this approach that seems to work uh, really well for you, but what is the most common question that you get? You mentioned that there can be a variety of, of things that parents may be worried about. Maybe they just didn't understand why it was needed. Maybe they didn't know if, if it was safe. What do you think is the number one question that you're answering in your clinic? Well, it really depends on the vaccine and um, it, it depends upon uh, the uh, uh, the age of the child, uh, we'll, we will have questions of parents who are wondering, uh, why we give the flu vaccine when their children have never been diagnosed with it. I've already given you the answer. It's really our fault. We can't afford to do the test to diagnose flu, particularly when it won't change how we're going to treat the patient. So all too often the fever with sore throat, you know, the fever with cough due to the flu goes undiagnosed. We rule out the things that we would have treated, but it leaves the parent wondering, what's all this talk about influenza and flu? And you can imagine most parents have the same issue with HPV. Uh, they may not have de dealt with a loved one who had cervical cancer, or if they did, they weren't aware that it was due to HPV. And they may not be aware that in our country, um, uh, 10,000 males a year get HPV-related cancers, and head and neck cancers caused by HPV are now almost as common as cervical cancer in this country due to HPV. And so they don't know that HPV causes it. They don't know why that vaccine is being recommended. So those are frequently common questions. Why are you giving this vaccine? Um, you know, I... We often will get the thing, one of the questions I get the most about from parents about infants are, would it be better to give the vaccine, the vaccine separately at several visits rather than all at once? Would it be less painful? Now actually the answer to that question is surprising, but anesthesiologists, neurologists, and others um, who concern themselves with pain have learned that Spreading out painful events rather than having them all at once actually causes more pain. So let's say we have three vaccines due. Um, our studies have shown that if you get them all one day rather than over, say, the next three weeks, you'll suffer less pain. And that goes to whether you're an infant, a teenager, or an adult. Um, just as uh, you might hear uh, a parent tell a child in other regards with something that they don't, aren't looking forward to doing, just get it over now is actually good advice when it comes to the vaccines due. Do they work just as well given all together as, to, as opposed to separately? 
Yes, in fact, as I mentioned, the studies of the vaccines added to the schedule were studied within that schedule and not separately. So we know very well they work when given with the other vaccines. Thank you so much. And I just have one quick question to round us out, and that is, what is your favorite vaccine? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I suppose it, it, it really depends on on uh, the patients in front of me and what I'm doing, but I'd have to say I reflect on the rotavirus vaccine, and I think what a marvelous invention. What a wonderful thing that vaccine has done. As a just really 10, 20 years ago, pediatricians dealt with a huge amount of diarrhea. Uh, babies and toddlers, uh, parents uh, who were struggling with having to take them out of daycare and bring them to the office because they had nasty fever, vomiting, and diarrhea. It was due to rotavirus. Uh, we didn't diagnose it or test it. We just knew that the overwhelming amount of diarrhea caused in wintertime in infants but due to rotavirus. And, you know, actually it would go through the household too, so parents weren't immune from catching it from their babies. And, of course, it spread through daycare. We knew that we had uh, huge numbers of cases every year, 500,000 cases uh, a year, maybe 50,000 doctor visits, 40,000 ED visits, and, and uh, a fair amount of hospitalizations as a result, maybe 8,000, 10,000 a year. Well, these rotavirus vaccines that we now use in the office, uh, one brand is two doses uh, and one brand is three doses, given in infancy, have wiped out rotavirus. That wintertime diarrhea that used to fill our offices, literally, uh, is now a thing of the past. Uh, it's dramatic. Uh, it has really changed how we schedule pediatricians and family physicians' time. Uh, we used to never let anyone go on vacation during that time because of the huge number of acute visits and follow-up visits that we had to do for a diarrhea that has become a thing of the past. It's an amazing vaccine also because it's given by mouth and not involving a shot. And it runs through the body and creates immunity right where the virus was hit, would hit them um, in the gut. So it's been an amazing journey. It's, it is so beautiful to reflect on something like that and what it has done for our practices and our babies and our parents. Thank you so much, Dr. Jacobson, for agreeing to be on our podcast and sharing all of your perspective and wise words. And thank you to everybody for tuning in to our podcast again and listening in. If you're a first-time listener, please make sure to subscribe. We are available pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast stitcher apple podcast um google play etc cetera, etc cetera. but uh thank you so much for coming by my name is karen ernst and i am the executive director of voices for vaccine and i'm nathan boonstra general pediatrician find me on twitter with the handle of pedsgeekmd or look for me on facebook or my blog pedsgeekmd.com stay alive guys i'll find you